Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office and the host of this series. For today's episode, we're talking about an always popular topic, leases. For our conversation, I'm happy to welcome back to the studio frequent guests at PwC's digital campus, Suzanne Stefani and Mark Jerusalem, both leasing specialists, and I'm looking forward to having them on together to discuss this timely topic. So let's get started. Suzanne, Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Looking forward to a conversation about day two accounting considerations for operating leases, and I know for most public companies, they're going into their first close, uh, year-end close for leasing, so it's very timely to have the conversation. So let's start things out with our first topic, real estate leases. And frequently in a real estate lease, the lessee will enter into a new lease, but they'll customize the space before they move in. So for example, if I had a retail store, I wouldn't just keep the shelf, but I'd actually go in, get it all set up with all my branding and everything else so the store has the right look and feel. And often in those cases, the lessee will make payments to do the work, and then there's questions about how should I account for those payments, and I know there's a lot of scenarios about who's making the payments and when the payments are made, so let's run through those. So, Mark, where should people start if they're in this scenario? The first place that people should start is to give some consideration to whether the expenditures they're making, are they spending this money to build an asset that is owned by the lessor or to build an asset that is owned by the lessee. Because that really sets the stage for how we think about how to account for the payments and, and we'll talk about in a few minutes also, if you get reimbursed, how to account for those as well. Now, I have to tell people that the most common scenario is that you're probably paying for leasehold improvements. That's most likely what people are doing. Because we think that the first step, and I say we think, because there may be more, more than one way to evaluate this, but we think a good approach is, you know, first step, does the lease agreement or does the lessor require you to put in that type of an improvement, okay? Because think about it, if you're gonna assume that this payment is to build something on behalf of the lessor, then the lessor should care about that thing and want mm. you to do it. If the lessor is indifferent to it, if it's not even written in the lease agreement, then for sure it's, a, it's your own asset. Yeah, and I guess, Mark, I gave the example of a retail store, but this could equally apply if I'm renting office space. And normally if I'm renting office space, the lessor is not going to specify how I outfit my office. That's right. So if the lessor is indifferent to what you're doing specifically, then most likely it's leasehold improvement. Now, even if it is in the lease agreement, it could still be a leasehold improvement. So the second thing that I would think about is basically how generic or how unique is it to the lessee, you know, the, the type of improvement you're making. So general rule of thumb, the more generic the, the improvement, the more likely that the lessor could continue to use this after your lease ends, either when you renew the lease or when a, a different lessee comes in, the more likely I would think of that as a lessor's asset, okay? On the other hand, the more unique it is to that specific lessee or the less value it'll have at the end of that lease, so think of you know new flooring or carpeting, the lessor is gonna rip it out as soon as you're gone, so that's more likely a lessee asset, right? 
So I would give some consideration, is it generic and will it last longer than the lease? Is it unique and will it not last longer than the lease? If it does last longer than the lease, is it something that the lessor thinks is valuable that will increase the value of the leased space? Right. And then, Mark, I guess, just running through scenarios in my head, you could clearly have a scenario where you have both, where some is the lease hold improvement and some is not. That Absolutely. And you should give consideration to both. So if it, if it is a lessor asset, we should yeah. account for it as a lessor asset. If it is a lessee asset or a leasehold improvement, you should account for it as a leasehold improvement. Okay. So why, do, why does it even matter if it's a lessee asset or a lessor asset? Well, starting with lessor assets, and again, that's the less common scenario, right? But if it is a lessor asset, then what the lessee is doing is they've simply been asked to make payments on the lessor's behalf, and we would account for all of those payments as rents, right? Because it's not your own PP&E. Alternatively, if you've concluded that it is a lessee asset, i.e. it's leasehold improvements, then all of those expenditures you made on your leasehold improvements, generally regardless of how much you got reimbursed, would be PP&E. They'd be leasehold improvements. They'd be accounted for differently. So you know, that's why it matters. That's helpful. So then why don't we move on to our next topic, which is that now we know what a lessee should do if they make this payment up front. What should the lessee do if they actually receive reimbursement of these costs from the lessor? So same theme as Mark was going. When you get a reimbursement from the lessor, the accounting depends on whether they're reimbursing you for your own asset, so a lessee asset, or whether they're reimbursing you for a lessor asset. I'll start off again with the less common scenario, which is lessor assets. So like Mark said, when the lessee makes that original payment for the lessor asset, it's a lease payment. And I'm gonna go with the more common scenario when the lessee makes this payment before lease commencement. So what they're gonna do when they make that payment is they're gonna record it as prepaid rent. Okay, so then when the lessor reimburses the lessee for that asset, they're simply gonna reduce that prepaid rent balance. Now, sometimes the lessee might not get fully reimbursed for their payment for the lessor asset. Maybe there's overruns or something like that. So after they reduce the prepaid asset for the reimbursement, there might be something left over. So what do you do with that? Right. Um, that ultimately is it's gonna get rolled into the right of use asset at least commencement. And then just accounted for subsequently as part of the right of use asset? Exactly. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. And now if I turn to reimbursement for lessee assets, so basically, like Mark said earlier, the lessee is going to make that payment and it's going to record PP&E, leasehold improvements, because it's its own asset. So then when the lessor comes in and reimburses the lessee for some or all of the cost of those assets, it's treated as a lease incentive. So one thing to be clear of, the lease incentive does not reduce the PP&E that the lessee just recorded for that leasehold improvement. Instead, it gets recorded as part of the right of use asset since it's truly a lease incentive. Okay, so it's important because potentially your PPE and your right of use asset are not being amortized for the uh -huh. same period. Yeah. And so it's going to be important just to get your accounting exactly. right. Exactly. So then why don't we stick with those payments, the lease incentive payments. Uh -huh. And you were focused there on Suzanne on reimbursements that are paid before or mm -hmm. at lease commencement. Yeah. But what about if... I don't get my payment until after lease commencement. What do I do in that scenario? Yeah, so that's pretty common, like especially in, in um, real estate type leases, right? So the, the lessee will work on improvements and make their own leasehold improvements, and then they'll submit the receipt to the lessor to get reimbursed. And usually it's up to some like maximum dollar amount, right? So for example, 
let's see it, say we have a lessor that agrees to reimburse his lessee up to 100,000 for leasehold improvements. So the lessee would work on, you know, getting those leasehold improvements ready. And then once they get them, they'd submit the receipt to the lessor. Again, only up to 100,000. So usually also there's some sort of time limit, right, for submitting those receipts. So let's say it's a year in this case. So we get this question a lot of, okay, should I record this 100,000 incentive up front at least commencement? Because I don't have it. Yeah, you don't yeah. have it. Maybe you're uncertain of the timing and all, and all that. So do get that question a lot. And we think it should, in fact, be recorded at lease commencement. One, because the definition of lease payments and the guidance includes lease incentives. And two, we're viewing these essentially as fixed at lease commencement. So why do I say it's fixed? That's because generally it'd be really uncommon for a lessee, you know, they go and they negotiate for the lessor to pay them a maximum amount for them to forgo any of that. Right, and not to use it. Yeah, so like in my example, right, if the lessee negotiated to get 100000 for its leasehold improvements, it's not very likely or, or common that they're only going to spend 90000 and and leave 10000 on the table, right? They're going to spend the whole thing. Okay, but then Suzanne, in your scenario, you said that this could actually be reimbursed, maybe there's like a year to uh -huh. submit the receipts. Yep. So mm -hmm. how do you factor it into your schedule if you don't actually know the timing of when you're going to yeah. get it? So one, I think you would treat the incentive as basically a cash inflow in your lease liability amortization schedule. But right, you don't know exactly the timing. So we think the lessee needs to estimate the timing. So at least commencement, think about when do you think you're gonna finish your leasehold improvements? When do you think you're gonna get that payment? So in my example, you know, the lessee could get 100,000 over the first year. If they think they're gonna get it in six months, then when they're doing their lease amortization schedule, they should put that payment in as an inflow um, in six months to basically okay. estimate it. Yeah, so then it's going to reduce my lease liability. So mm -hmm. then it would also impact the amount I'm recognizing for a right-of-use asset. Right, and it, it's also going to impact classification. Just want to point that out. So as it's basically kind of a reduction of lease payments, so that should get factored in as well when classifying the lease. That makes sense to me that if it's considered fixed, I'm going to include it in my schedules. But yeah. then what if there's a change in either my estimate of the amount for some reason, yeah. although I know that's unlikely, or yeah. more likely that there'd be a change in the timing of when I receive it? Of course, we're talking about when there's a, a change in timing that would have a material impact. But if the actual receipt of the reimbursement changes, like from what you thought, when you thought you were going to get it or, or the amount, you should basically, a lessee should analogize to the remeasurement guidance for leases and remeasure the lease liability using the same discount rate they used at lease commencement just to true up the liability. Because if they don't do that, the liability's not going to work out at the end. Oh, you're going to wind up with a balance yeah. or not, yeah, right. not enough. So, okay. so we think they should make that adjustment if, if it has a material impact. Okay, that's helpful. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah. All right, then why don't we move to another topic that I know has resulted in a lot of day two questions, which would be around lease termination. So we've talked about beginning of leases, now let's talk about the end of the lease. So in a lot of cases, a company may be required to make a termination payment. What should you be thinking about in this circumstance? Well, the very first thing I'd think about is, is it really a termination? And I think this is a little bit tricky because as you just mentioned, you know, quite often, the agreement to terminate the lease will actually have a termination penalty, something labeled as a penalty, mm -hmm. right? The way the guidance works, however, is something's only accounted for as a termination 
if it truly serves to end the lease. In that case, then the lease is being terminated. The lessee would sort of clean up all the accounts, so they would de-recognize the remaining lease liability, including this additional payment perhaps. They would de-recognize the right of use asset, and they would have a resultant gain or loss. Okay, so then Mark, that seems fairly straightforward if I know that's gonna happen eminently, but what if we've made this negotiation that I'm going to move out maybe before the end of the lease term, but it's going to happen over some time? Right. So that may very well be labeled a lease termination or it may even require, you know, the parties may negotiate for an immediate termination payment, right, for that negotiated uh, modification to the lease. But the reality is that because the lessee can continue to use that asset for some amount of time, that's more likely just a modification. It really isn't a termination. So regardless of the label termination, if I get to use that office space or that retail space for an additional six months, right, even though I'm shortening the lease, I would most likely go through all the steps of a modification. So, you know, what are the steps in the modification? Well, I would consider, you know, what are my new payments? If I have both lease and non-lease services, I might have to think about reallocating those based on new relative standalone prices. Um, I'd certainly have to remeasure the lease liability using an updated discount rate, remeasure the right of use asset as a result of that, and account for it prospectively from that date forward even though there may be an immediate payment that's labeled a termination penalty. It's really just a modification. Okay, and for people who are interested in lease modifications, I definitely encourage them to check out the podcast that I did in July with Jillian Pierce, because we actually go into more detail on that. Okay, so then let's turn to another termination scenario. And one in particular that I know that's been coming up a lot is a case where I terminate but I, so let's say I have office space, I terminate that lease, but at the same time, with the same lessor, I enter into a lease for another space. How do I think about that? Right, so in that scenario, there's really two things going on that were negotiated as a package. So I have to consider my contract combination guidance there, right? So the first thing to think about is that a new space, right, is gonna be a separate leased asset from the old space. Even if it's in the same building or whatnot, you know, you're, you're moving from three floors in the building to a single floor in a different part of the building, you're gonna have two leases, okay? And now you've negotiated for two things at the same time. You're terminating the one lease, right? You're also entering into a new lease. So we have to consider all of that consideration and determine whether or not it needs to be allocated amongst the two leases, right, on a relative standalone basis. Because just think about it, they may have charged you an explicit termination penalty Alternately, they may just build it into the new rents on the new space. So regardless of what it says in the document, you're most likely going to have to consider what is the relative standalone price of the new lease, what is the relative standalone price of the old lease, and come up with an allocation, and then go through all the stuff we talked about previously. You know, once you allocate, you'd have to look at lease classification again. Let's assume these are all operating leases. You'd have to measure your lease liabilities based on updated discount rates and, and so on and so forth. So definitely a lot to think about. Probably a good time to check out the leases guide. That's right. And then how about if you're a lessor? Should you think about that transaction the same way? Again, we're talking about just assuming that these things have always been, you know, they were operating leases yesterday, yeah. the operating leases tomorrow after uh, the modification. I think the answer is that yes, the lessor's accounting would be symmetrical, at least in terms of how they think about when to recognize any income or expenses, gains or losses that result from this. So even if they're charging a termination penalty on the old space, they would also have to think about the allocation between the two spaces, 
right? And again, if the lessee is able to use that space for some amount of time, say six months or a year, then it's not an immediate termination gain. It's something that is, you know, straight lined into their rental income over that shortened lease term. So it, it is symmetrical. Okay, so then we've talked then about a lot of different payments today. Um, and anytime we're talking about payments, I think it makes sense to talk about the statement of cash flows. And I know Suzanne, this is another area where you are a specialist. So before we get into the scenarios related to these particular types uh -huh. of payments, Suzanne, can you just give us the overall, re remind our listeners of the overall framework for operating leases in the cash flow statement? Sure, so we're talking about operating leases here. So all cash payments for operating leases would be classified as operating cash flows. Then any changes to the lease liability and right of use asset besides the changes related to the single lease expense should be disclosed as non-cash activities. So that would be new leases, remeasurements, modifications, and terminations. Okay, and then Suzanne, again, before we get into the detail of what we talked about today, uh -huh. I know we continue to get questions on the indirect method for operating leases because now the fact we have these two uh, different balance sheet accounts. And so it is something that we talked about uh, on the last accounting reporting developments mm -hmm. webcast. Yep. But can you just remind our listeners of what they should be thinking about? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we do still get some questions on this. So before I get into that, I think it's first important to understand what makes up the changes in those two balance sheet accounts that we now have because of the new guidance. So the lease liability, the right of use asset. So I'll start with the lease liability. So this balance, it's going to increase for the interest portion of the single lease expense and it's going to decrease for the cash lease payment and then it's going to increase for new leases and then it could change for any other remeasurement event. The right of use asset, it's going to be reduced each period for the difference between the single lease expense and the accretion in the, of interest on the lease liability and then just like the lease liability it can increase for new leases or, or change for any sort of remeasurement event. So now getting to the reconciliation to net income and, and how that works with operating leases now. We think the best approach that someone should use when they're reconciling net income to operating cash flows would be to show one line item for the portion of the single lease expense that reduces the right of use asset. And then one line item for the change in the lease liability that's related to the, the cash lease payment and the interest accretion. Any other changes to those accounts for remeasurement events, new leases would not go into the reconciliation to net income. Instead, it, like I said earlier, it's just disclosed as a non-cash activity. So this separate presentation, it, it, we think it makes sense because it's consistent with the separate presentation of the two lines on the balance sheet. But we have observed in practice there are companies that continue to treat the change as one line item as they did under the old guidance and, and that's consistent with the P&L. Okay, that's helpful. So then Suzanne, why don't we focus in on the payments that we talked about today, um, starting with payments and reimbursements for assets and operating lease. Okay, sure. So kind of consistent theme today, it depends on whether these payments are for a lessee or a lessor asset. So let's start with lessee assets, the most common. So. Like we said earlier, when a lessee pays for its own assets, um, they're putting that on as PP&E. So when it makes that payment, it would be an investing cash outflow. Now, when they get reimbursed from the lessor for that asset, that's gonna be an operating inflow. That's just 
kind of a negative lease payment. It's, it's not going to, like I said earlier, it's not going to reduce the leasehold improvement PP&E balance. So that's operating. Now, if we go to lessor assets, um, like I mentioned earlier, if a lessee is going to make that payment for a lessor asset before lease commencement, it's shown as prepaid rent. So prepaid rent in an operating lease, it's going to be operating. And then when the lessor comes and reimburses that payment, again, it's a reversal of the prepaid. Again, it's just operating, being operating in flow. Okay, great. And then what if we think about the termination payments that Mark was talking about? Mm -hmm. Yep, so first we'd have a non-cash disclosure for any changes in the lease liability and right of use asset due to that transaction. But any payment, any cash termination payment is gonna follow the classification of the lease. So since we're focusing on operating leases today, those are all gonna be operating, it'd be a termination payment, so operating outflows. Okay, great. So Suzanne, Mark, thanks so much for the insight. Really appreciate you joining sure. me today. You're welcome. Please join me here again next week when we turn our attention to implementation of the new credit losses standard. For this conversation, I'll be welcoming Chip Curry, a partner in PwC's national office, back to the studio. Chip and I will be joined by Chris Rickley, a partner in PwC's financial services industry practice, who's been working with companies on implementation. Chris previously worked with Chip and I in the national office, and I'm looking forward to learning some practical tips. This is an important issue that affects both financial and non-financial companies, so I hope you tune in for this timely discussion. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review or connect with me on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.